Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. The city of Milpitas defeated an employee with fibromyalgia FEHA claim. Here's what happened in the case of Ivan Andrade versus the city of Milpitas. In 2000, Andrade became a permanent hourly paid employee for the city. Since that time, she has held the position of office specialist for the Planning and Neighborhood Services Department, which is located at City Hall. Andrade attends planning commission meetings and drafts the minutes for the planning commission and the library commission. She also performs office administrative functions, including generating correspondence, completing forms and other documents for planners, and entering timesheet information into the payroll computer system. In 2008, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and she took a medical leave. Her doctor then placed partial work restrictions relating to lifting and other physical activities. Andrade agreed that the city accommodated these restrictions. Later, she was diagnosed with Addison's disease, arrhythmia, and arthritis. Sometimes her pain was so severe that she was unable to function and was bedridden. Andrade used her leave time, including vacation time and sick leave, to enable her to be paid when she did not come to work, and she also took leave without pay. She was also allowed to make up missing time by working at lunch time or until 6 o'clock p.m. No one at the city was critical or complained about her missing work and taking leave without pay or denied her the ability to go home when she did not feel well. Andrade then spoke to her supervisors and asked to work from home when she was not feeling well. The city refused to allow her access to the computer systems from her home as this would pose a security threat. Andrade brought an action against the city for failure to accommodate her disability because it refused to allow her to perform some of her duties from home. She also argued that the city failed to engage in the interactive process in a timely manner. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of the city of Milpitas and Andrade appealed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion affirmed the dismissal of her case. An employer is not required to choose the preferred accommodation or the one that the employee seeks. The employer has the ultimate discretion to choose between effective accommodations and may choose the less expensive accommodation or the one that is easier for it to provide. The Supreme Court has held that an employee cannot make his employer provide a specific accommodation if other reasonable accommodation is instead provided. Moreover, an employer is not required to make an accommodation that the employer demonstrates would produce undue hardship. Here the city offered a reasonable accommodation for Andrade's disability. And now our fraud report. A Tulare County employee has been arrested for workers' compensation fraud. Investigators from the office of the District Attorney, County of Tulare, arrested 52-year-old Michael D. Maloney, who resides in Porterville. Maloney was wanted for allegedly filing a fraudulent workers' compensation claim. Maloney was arrested on a $10,000 bail felony warrant and was subsequently booked into the jail at the Tulare County Sheriff's Office. Maloney was employed by the County of Tulare Resource Management Agency as a heavy equipment operator. The total alleged loss was about $25,000. 
Investigators from the Office of the District Attorney will continue to investigate all allegations of workers' compensation fraud and additional arrests are pending. One of the 10 most wanted healthcare fugitives has been arrested in Canada. Leonard Noifor was detained on an extradition warrant at his Toronto residence. He has been a fugitive after being convicted in a $1 million healthcare fraud scheme in California. The U.S. Marshal's Office contacted Toronto authorities in August to seek their help in finding Noifor and issued the extradition warrant last month. He was sentenced back in 2010 in absentia to nine years in prison and ordered to pay more than $500,000 in restitution and $25,000 in fines. He was also ordered to forfeit more than $500,000 in stolen funds to the U.S. government. Authorities believe he had been living in Canada since he fled. Nufour was also wanted by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, which had placed him among its 10 most wanted fugitives. The agency charges that Nufour opened fraudulent credit card accounts in Arizona and used the cards in Southern California. Nufour was convicted at trial in September 2008 of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and health care uh, insurance fraud. At trial, evidence established that Nufour, through his company Pacific City Group Incorporated, a.k.a. Pacific City Medical Equipment, submitted about $1 million in fraudulent claims to Medicare. The evidence presented showed that almost all the claims Nufour submitted to Medicare were for expensive, high-end power wheelchairs and wheelchair accessories that were not needed by the beneficiaries. Individuals known as marketers approached victims on the street, at home, or in church and encouraged them to give the marketers their Medicare numbers and other personal information in exchange for free power wheelchairs. Nufor billed Medicare for power wheelchairs on behalf of more than 170 beneficiaries, none of whom actually needed the wheelchairs. Physicians testified that the prescriptions bearing their names were phony and that their handwriting was not on any of the prescriptions. After his conviction, Nufor admitted in documents he filed with the court that he purchased the prescriptions and documents he used to support his false claims to Medicare from a co-conspirator for approximately $1,300 per prescription. And in regulatory news, the DWC announced new regulations implementing provisions of Senate Bill 863. DIR Director Christine Baker says they are on track to implement the wide-ranging reforms. Key components of Senate Bill 863, which became law on January 1st, include an increase in permanent disability indemnity rates for workers phased in over two years. Other aspects of the bill, including those designed to cut costs for businesses, will now be implemented through regulatory action. The new regulations have been approved on an interim basis by the Office of Administrative Law. The full rulemaking process with public hearings are scheduled to take place by March. For injuries on or after January 1, 2013, and effective July 1, 2013 for all dates of injury, Medical treatment disputes will be resolved by physicians through an efficient process known as independent medical review. Independent medical review is the sole process for resolving disputes regarding ongoing treatment issues. 
Medical service billing disputes for dates of service on or after January 1, 2013 will be resolved through a non-judicial process of independent bill review. The IBR applies to any medical service bill where the fee is determined by a fee schedule adopted by the DWC. If the medical provider disagrees with the amount paid by a claims administrator on a properly documented bill following a second review, he or she can request an IBR. Any lien for reasonable medical expenses incurred by or on behalf of the injured employee and filed on or after January 1, 2013 is subject to a lien filing fee of $150. For those liens filed before January 1, 2013, there will be a $100 activation fee, which must be paid prior to January 1, 2014, or the lien will be subject to dismissal by operation of law. President Obama signed the SMART Act expediting Medicare settlements. Congress passed H.R. 1845, which contains the Bipartisan Strengthening Medicare and Repaying Taxpayers Act, also known as the SMART Act. The SMART Act amends several portions of the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute and aims to simplify and soften portions of the statute that have been burdensome to beneficiaries and industry stakeholders. Conditional payments occur where Medicare pays for items or services that are later determined to be the financial responsibility of another plan, such as workers' compensation. Under current CMS policy, CMS does not issue a final conditional payment determination amount until after the settlement. This has been a source of considerable frustration for Medicare beneficiaries and creates additional risk for non-group health plans, because CMS can recover medical conditional payments from a primary plan for injury-related medical care, notwithstanding the fact that the plan has already paid the claim and obtained a release for such medical care. Not knowing the final conditional payment amount prior to settlement impedes the ability to, rec to directly satisfy Medicare's interests because payments of settlement proceeds must generally be paid promptly after a settlement. This has led liability insurance and other plans to seek work arounds to release provisions designed to ensure that Medicare's interests are in fact satisfied, adding to the complexities for settlement. The SMART Act addresses these concerns by requiring that CMS make a statement of reimbursement available to the Medicare beneficiary his or her authorized representatives and or the non-group health plan within the with the beneficiary's consent on a secure website prior to settlement of a non-group health plan claim. The settling parties can rely upon the statement as the final agency determination of Medicare conditional payments where certain conditions are met. This will allow the parties to factor the final lien amount into their settlement negotiations. Many stakeholders have also expressed concern over the slow and cumbersome process available for beneficiaries who wish to dispute costs that a CMS contractor identifies as Medicare conditional payments on the basis that such costs are not related to the illness, injury, or incident at issue. The SMART Act requires that the Secretary provide Medicare beneficiaries and their authorized representatives a timely process to resolve the discrepancy. 
The Secretary also must promulgate implementing regulations concerning these processes within nine months of the enactment of the SMART Act. And now our medical report. Scientists have long searched for a method to objectively measure pain and it and a new study from Brigham and Women's Hospital advances that effort. The study appears in the January edition of the journal Pain. Specifically, researchers studied adults with and without chronic back pain using a brain imaging technique called arterial spin labeling. They found that when a patient moved in a way that increased their back pain, a network of brain regions called default mode network exhibited changes in its connections. Regions within the network became less connected with the rest of the network, whereas regions outside the network became connected with this network. Some of these observations have been noted in previous studies of fibromyalgia patients, which suggests these changes in brain connectivity might reflect a general feature of chronic pain possibly a common uh, way to differentiate these patient populations. Researchers said that this is the first study using arterial spin labeling to show common networking properties of the brain that are affected by chronic pain. This research supports the use of arterial spin labeling as a tool to evaluate how the brain encodes and is affected by clinical pain and the use of resting default mode network connectivity as a potential neuroimaging biomarker for chronic pain perception. However, researchers say that there is a need to be cautious in the interpretation of the results of this study. The U.S. government launched a sweeping study of rising sports-related concussions amid concerns that the injuries may have contributed to the suicides of professional football players. The Institute of Medicine, part of the National Academies of Science, will probe sports-related concussions in young people from elementary school through early adulthood. The study will include military personnel and their dependents and review concussions and risk factors. The study is one of the most extensive ever done. The panel intends to submit its report to the Institute of Medicine in the middle of the summer, with publication expected late in 2013. A 2010 study by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that U.S. emergency rooms yearly treat 173,000 temporary brain injuries, including concussions, related to sports or recreation among people less than 19 years of age. The number of emergency room visits for such injuries rose 60% in the previous decade among children and adolescents. A separate 2007 study showed that the incidence of brain injury was highest in football and girls' soccer. About 2,000 former NFL players sued the league last year, alleging it concealed the risk of brain injury from players while marketing the ferocity of the game. Many of these same players have filed workers' compensation claims in California, claiming that head injuries decades ago have caused dementia in later years. Concerns about a possible link between concussions and mental illness, such as depression, grew in the wake of the suicides of former NFL players Junior Seau, Ray Easterling, and Dave Duerson in the last two years. 
The California Workers' Compensation Institute has released the sixth edition of its Injury Scorecard Research Series, providing detailed data for cases in which the primary diagnosis was carpal tunnel syndrome. The new scorecard is based on nearly 20,000 open and closed carpal tunnel claims that resulted in total payments of $738 million. Over the 11-year span of the study, carpal tunnel claims accounted for less than 1% of California job injury claims, but 2.4% of all paid losses. More than 60% of carpal tunnel claims come from the professional, clerical, manufacturing, and mercantile sectors. But since 2008, the highest growth rate has been among hospital workers, who accounted for nearly 14% of the claims, up from 6.3% the prior five years. More than half of the carpal tunnel claims over the past decade have resulted in permanent disability, more than triple the rate for all job injury claims. Since 2001, the average claim duration for carpal tunnel claims has been nearly 31 months from the claim filing date to claim closure, nearly triple the average of 10.8 months for all other work injury claims. A number of factors that may have contributed to the longer claim duration include uncertainty and disputes over the cause and nature of the injury, initial treatment delays, high levels of attorney involvement, and treatment plans that often involve surgery followed by physical therapy and delayed return to work. Comp Pharma, a consortium of pharmacy benefit managers, published its ninth annual survey report on prescription drug management in workers' compensation. Third-party payers now agree that narcotics are highly problematic for workers' comp claimants, employers, and insurers. The report relies on survey responses from insurers, third-party administrators, and employers with prescription expenses totaling nearly $475 million. The new survey confirms that addiction to opioid pain medications and the dispensing of drugs by doctors remain top concerns for workers' compensation companies. Moreover, respondents are concerned that drug costs will be more of a problem in the next 12 to 24 months than they are today. Many responses noted newly implemented programs or steps designed to address opioid use. In 2011, implementing and, uh, and upgrading those programs was the most common change to respondents' pharmacy management programs. Half of all respondents utilized a urine drug testing program to monitor claimant compliance. There's a clear indication that drug testing is growing in popularity. Pharmacy management and workers' comp has evolved dramatically over the nine years that surveys have been taken. There's been a remarkable increase in sophistication and understanding from a focus on the price of the pill and the size of the retail pharmacy network in 2003 to today's concern about opioids and physician dispensing and clinical management. And in regulatory news, Hyatt at Fisherman's Wharf announced it has reached a settlement with the Cal OSHA after working cooperatively with the agency to ensure continued workplace safety for the hotel's housekeeping staff. 
no ergonomic violations related to housekeeper tasks such as bed making, vacuuming, or dusting were found after exhaustive investigations by four separate OSHA jurisdictions. And all repetitive motion citations were withdrawn at Hyatt at Fisherman's Wharf. The settlement resolves the last of 12 inspections at Hyatt Hotels that were instigated by complaints made by the Unite Here Union as a part of its ongoing campaign to pressure Hyatt to force associates into union membership. Officials at Hyatt were pleased that they were able to work cooperatively with Cal OSHA and that the settlement does not support the union's complaints that housekeepers were exposed to repetitive motion injuries. In the settlement, Hyatt at Fisherman's Wharf agreed to continue with its ongoing thorough job hazard analysis of housekeepers' job tasks to determine if they pose any unsafe or unhealthy workplace exposures and to examine housekeeper tools and equipment. That analysis is led by a certified and independent ergonomist. That's all our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.